we also know Barramundi from North Queensland. They all also start off in the ocean as uh, as juvenile males. They'll grow up in freshwater rivers and lakes and then eventually come back to the ocean. And once they get to a certain size, um, they'll become females as well. And so that's why, if you've ever wondered when uh, when you do fish for barramundi, why there's a minimum and a maximum limit, it's because in between those sizes, there's a mix of males and females. If you're getting them too small, you're taking away all the males. And if you're getting all the really big ones, they're all going to be females. And they're the ones that contribute to that population the most. And so the length of time it takes to change can vary a lot between them. It can just be a few weeks or it can be to, uh, a few months to years, depending on the type of fish. Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? What about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats. I'm going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world, but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Good. How about you? Great. I'm so excited to have you back. Yeah. I think this is, is it third time? Yeah, I think third so. Time. Yeah. Now I tell you what, if, 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 if everyone has not listened to your first two podcast episodes they need to go back to those have a listen Mm -hmm. and then jump to here because I think what we're going to talk about today definitely the last one with our with our sharks that we were talking about might actually help a little bit um with this with this podcast I'm I'm thinking but yeah thank you so much for coming along I always enjoy learning from you so I'm really excited um so everyone we're talking to Andrew Khalil here um so Andrew where are you still in Brisbane Yeah, still in Brisbane. Still in Brisbane. And how's your new job going? It's going really well, yeah. It's been an exciting few months um, working at the biology department at the University of Queensland. So, uh, yeah, if you are a student there or want to be a student there or just studying biology anywhere, uh, definitely uh, yeah, feel free to reach out if you want to know anything about uh, the day-to-day life of working at a uni it's pretty fun (laughs) (laughs) it would be especially um with what you're doing as well and you get to do some field work so you were Mm. I think last time we were talking to you you guys were maybe going out on on some field um trips or you were thinking about it but maybe a bit of the COVID issue has put a spanner in the works there but um yeah, we had we had um I took I did take my biology class to Mount Nebo. Uh, there you go. Yeah, uh, in uh, it's in Diaguila National Park, just uh, in Brisbane, and mm-hmm. we did a lot of terrestrial biology work there, and that was a really fun trip 
for about 300 students. So, wow. Yeah. That's a big trip. Yeah. <laughs> Not all together. We did three different trips, about 100 oh. each time. Oh, that's so, all right. Yeah. Still 100. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one thing I love about um, you is how you explain everything. So I'm sure your students get so much from you, Andrew. So I really look forward to this um, wild chat we're going to go on. And and I reckon it'll probably take us a few little pathways as well. Yeah. So tell us what you really, really want to share with us today and, and let's let's kick it off. Let's go. Yeah. Well, last time we talked about, we talked a lot about um, sharks and their role and how they've actually shaped a lot of what we see in the oceans because they've been around so long. One of the biggest things that shapes other animals in evolutionary time uh, is their predator and prey relationships. And as predators, sharks have really influenced a lot of the, of the behaviors and colors and shapes that we see in fish. And so I think you wanted to hear more about that. And so we were going to talk about a lot of those uh, specific things that as a fish – you evolve over time to avoid a, a bigger fish like a shark, but not mm. necessarily. And uh, there's a lot of different things that are involved with that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just, I just find it fascinating that that over time all this is created, mm. and I think bringing that forward is something that's really interesting because we always seem to, well, not always, but. Um, assuming here but but we always seem to concentrate more on you know the sharks and the big mm. crocodiles and the cassowaries and everything but what about the colors of the fish i mean that's that's interesting that's fascinating yeah. can you tell us more about how all this is shaped what's yeah. going on tell us some cool stuff about the colors and how this works in water as well because <laughs> this is something that i found really interesting is the the depth and the colors and what you can see what you can't see and and so forth and I learned this from you working at the aquarium by yeah the way, so. no it's really <laughs> cool yeah so one of the most uh, when you look at fish fish are probably one of the most diverse group of uh, vertebrate animals we know and vertebrates are animals with backbones and uh, just like us fish have a backbone and uh, a bony skeleton unless you're talking about uh, sharks and rays, which we talked about last time, they still have a skeleton and uh, a spinal cord, but their skeleton's made of cartilage. So <clears throat> if we focus on, uh, we can focus on all fish. It includes some sharks as well, because color is really important to uh, life in the ocean. And one of the things that is diverse about fish, other than all the shapes and sizes that fish come in. I mean, you you have a huge diversity of size. You have tiny gobies that are only a couple of millimeters long um, to the biggest fish, which is a whale shark uh, at the size of a bus. So they're really, really a diverse group of animals. And other than those shapes and sizes, the color is something that people ask about a lot. Uh, everyone has seen coral reefs with fish of every color imaginable. Uh, we've seen all sorts of those colors just in and around uh, our own lakes and rivers where fish may not be as colorful, but we still know that they need to be specific colors to play a role. So let's start with the less extravagant things. We'll just start with the regular fish that we see around our creeks and rivers. And nearly all fish are countershaded to an extent. So if you look at what appears to maybe be a boring um brown or little gray fish 
uh, even there's something that you would find in our creeks, like the little gudgeons and things. Uh, some of the rainbow fish that aren't as colorful at certain points of their lives. Um, they're always going to be countershaded, and that's what we see uh, when a fish's tummy is uh, white or paler mm. than the top. And that's really helpful. Just on a really, really basic level, uh, fish color helps camouflage them. And we all know camouflage from, uh, you know, I think when we're in year three or four, we learn that camouflage helps fish blend in. And most fish colors do actually do that. So when you're a when you live in a freshwater ecosystem like a creek or a river, um, you don't want to be brightly colored like your coral reef fish because you're going to be very easy to see and therefore very easy to eat if an animal is looking for you. So you don't want that. You want to be a color that helps you survive. Because remember, uh, natural selection works on survival. If you don't survive and you get eaten, you don't get to reproduce and make more of yourself. And you don't get to pass those colors on. So over millions and millions of years, um, if a fish, for example, and we know that sometimes genetics means that fish are actually born with different colors than normal. Uh, we see albino fish a lot uh, in captivity, but we don't see them in the wild because a really pale white fish would get eaten really, really quickly. And therefore, those genes are really rare in the wild. Um, if you look at probably the easiest fish that everyone knows about, a goldfish. Uh, goldfish were not gold in the wild in the places they originated. <clears throat> they were actually a bronzy brown color before we started breeding them, and we thought the orange looked really nice. And so over just a couple hundred years, we made that the dominant gene in goldfish. But if you go out in the wild and you look at um, their close relatives like carp, um, they're actually that same brown color because that helps them survive better in the wild. So on a very basic level, the fish colors we see really help them survive. Uh, and occasionally we do see brightly colored fish in creeks and streams. Uh, a lot of our native gudgeons are very brightly colored with orange and purple specks of color. Uh, and again, those are, um, those are, a lot of that is for uh, mating selection. Um, it actually takes a lot of energy to produce color. Uh, if a fish doesn't need to, there's no point in doing it. But if a fish is, uh, it generally indicates a really healthy fish, and a lot of the male fish want a female to know that, and so uh, the, it's worth it for them to spend and invest that energy in those mm -hmm. colors. Uh, it also means it's a challenge to survive because those colors do make them an easy target for birds and other fish who may want to eat them. So there's a trade-off there between uh, surviving energy use and standing out that fish actually have to um, sort of navigate uh, in, their in their survival. And again, uh, that's a process that's millions of years old. So it's uh, it's really cool. And that's the basic level of color. And being difficult to see isn't just something for the small fish. It's actually something for the predators as well. If we go back to sharks, um, a great white shark is countershaded the same way uh, a little tiny guppy or uh, a small fish is. And for a great white shark, it may not necessarily be trying to hide from something that'll eat it. But 
when that shark is sneaking up on something from the bottom, that deep gray on top is really difficult to see when you look down. And if you're beneath the shark, uh, that white tummy blends in with the surface. And that's basically the coloration you'll see in almost any fish. Um, that countershaded white or pale tummy and darker top uh, is the most common theme that you'll see in nearly all fish uh, throughout lakes, rivers, and even the ocean. So that's the, the most common one. Um, mm. And then from there, we look at fish, just the basic colors that they are. So we discussed a lot of freshwater species in lakes and rivers being uh, a sort of brown or muddy color um, or more of a, a bronze color to help depending on where they're from. We do have a lot of really colorful freshwater fish though. And uh, again, those colors are really dependent on where the fish is from and what it does. Now, if we look at fish that are just a single color, uh, we can see a lot, there's a lot of them that are easy to explain. For example, um, in the open ocean, a lot of fish are a shade of blue. And again, that shade of blue is really, really difficult to see from far away. Uh, when when you're in the ocean, that blue helps you hide against all of the blue water around you. So it makes sense to be blue if you live in the open ocean. You'll see a lot of silvery fish as well. And uh, depending on the angle you're looking at that fish, that silvery color helps to deflect light. It helps that fish to kind of, again, in a place where there might be a lot of water movement and ripples in the water, uh, that silver can be very, very useful. And then you always have anomalies. So, for example, uh, a lot of uh, nocturnal fish are a very deep red color. Um, so, for example, a uh, soldier fish that you find on the reef, you wonder why they're such a deep red. Uh, and a lot of it is actually to do with how light behaves in water. So it's a little bit of a physics lesson. But um, if you've ever gone diving, a lot of people will go diving. And the first time they get to 15, 20 meters deep, uh, they'll wonder where all the color has gone that they see in the photos that, they, that people take at those depths. And the interesting thing about water is uh, and how light goes through it is you actually lose color very quickly as you descend in the water and the color is lost in the same order that you'd see it in a rainbow so we lose red first uh, after about five to ten meters depending on how clear the water is if you took a red card down with you you actually wouldn't be able to see the color red anymore without a torch or another artificial light source so as we go down, we lose red, then orange, then yellow, then green, and then blue and uh, violet are the last colors to be lost because their wavelengths are so long. And so not only by not so being a red fish actually means you appear very, very dark at a deeper depth because there's no red light to reflect off of you. So it actually makes a lot of sense that if you're a nocturnal fish and you're red, you're actually hiding very, very well. Uh, and same with a blue fish at depth. Um, blue is the only color left. So you're actually uh, not standing out very much amongst everything else down there that is those colors. So we actually see a lot of those colors uh, kind of um, uh, displayed and... They do all serve a purpose. And so those are probably the easier ones to explain, those solid colors. Um, 
but when we go when when we go to a coral reef, we get to the question where fish aren't a solid color; they're anything but. We see all sorts of intricate patterns. There's some fish that have pretty much every single color imaginable on them, and you would think, how on earth does that fish hide from anything? <laughs> it it looks like. Um, no, I don't know. It looks like something from a carnival or a circus. It's so colorful <laughs> that we can't help but actually notice it ourselves because we are very visual creatures. Um, and and the truth is, a lot of those specific colors and patterns are a bit of a mystery. Uh, there's a lot of different theories about why fish are those colors. And a lot of them are easier to sort of come to a conclusion at than others. And a lot are still very much just hypotheses that uh, we've come up with as scientists. Uh, we don't have a solid sort of uh, a study proving it. But based on what we do know about fish and how fish see, we have some really good ideas. Um, there's actually some fish that have uh, different colors on them that we can't even see. So, for example... Um, they found that a lot of damselfish actually have um, have uh, colors that reflect ultraviolet light, and they can see those colors on each other the same way we can see a person's face. And so they actually use that as a signature to tell each other apart, but we wouldn't be able to see those colors. Uh, a lot of fish can actually see uh a wider range, uh, a different range of color than we can. And a lot of the time that range is shifted into the ultraviolet. So they can actually see colors that have, uh, that are still around, even when the colors we can see have disappeared from, uh, the, from the ocean because the waters absorb them. So it's really cool to, to know that uh, fish use color uh, in more ways than just survival, mm -hmm. actually a way to uh, differentiate each other the same way we look at a person's face. Uh, they've actually found that fish have a lot of these unique colors to them as well that they can tell apart, but we can't really because we don't see them. Um, but going back to all those really crazy colors and patterns, when you look at a coral reef, all of that, all of that intricate coral and color associated with it likely has a really big role to play in the way um, that these patterns and colors have evolved over time. And rather than trying to camouflage themselves, which, which a lot of fish still do, you'll find a lot of coral reef fish are actually colored the same as certain corals. Uh, you'll find a lot of coral reef fish that hang around on the sand are really pale and uh, speckled to blend in with the sand. Mm. Um, if you look at lizard fish, for example, uh, if you look at a lot of flat fish like flounders, uh, you'll and uh, sand perch fish like that are very very well camouflaged on the reef. Uh, you get a lot of well camouflaged predators too. Uh, scorpion fish and stonefish are really really difficult to see. So you still have a really good assortment of fish that are using that traditional camouflage um, that we know of, where they don't want to be easy to see to a predator, and so they blend in with a very specific. A place. One of the most interesting is a ghost pipefish, where it actually uh, grows up on a specific type of coral, um, and it be it grows the same pattern 
and uh, and kind of shape as that coral over time. And so ghost pipefish will always look identical to uh, to the coral or sponge that they grow up on, and they'll stay there for the rest of their lives. Uh, same with pygmy seahorses and a lot of other very, very... Uh, niche specific animals uh, a lot of these fish will actually have uh, a very specific look to them and grow up and stay the rest of their lives on a single coral so a lot of them it makes sense for them to actually be that color but if you're a fish that doesn't stick around the same coral uh, for the, your whole life, which is most fish, most fish will spend their whole life probably on a reef or, re or a set of reefs that are close together. Um, when we look at Finding Nemo, it's kind of not the case where a fish will suddenly decide that it wants to travel far, far away. Um, I think we touched this on previous talks. Mm. Where, uh, we know that nearly all coral reef fish will be born um, in what we call broadcast spawning, uh, or a variation of it, where uh, their eggs will be fertilized, they'll hatch into a larvae, and that larvae will spend the first couple of weeks to couple of months of its life drifting in the ocean until it finds a coral reef of its own. And once it does find a reef of its own, it's not going to leave that reef or go very far for the rest of its life. That's its home from that point on. And so most fish need a way to survive and move around a reef uh, and still kind of avoid predators. So these really interesting colors and patterns, rather than camouflaging to actually blend in, uh, they're using a different technique, which is more disruptive. Uh, it's the same way if you've, see, if you've ever wondered why a zebra is the color that it is, it's black and white, and it stands out very much against the green, the green grass to us and in the savanna amongst that grass. It's like, well, if I were a lion, I wouldn't really have difficulty seeing that. How do these animals not get eaten? Mm -hmm. um, but then when you think about it, they don't see, lions don't see very well in color. So everything is black and white, so that gets rid of part of it. And then when you look at zebras' behavior together, they – they roam in really big herds. And so trying to pick out, imagine trying to pick out one zebra from a herd of hundreds when you can't even really see color. Then it becomes really, really difficult. And you kind of start to understand, oh, well, these stripes do kind of serve a purpose. They make it really difficult to pick out an individual from the others around it. And a lot of the colors and patterns that we see on fish uh, are doing just that. They're making mm. it really, really difficult to firstly find where the beginning of that fish is and where the end is. If you're a predator, you kind of need to be able to tell which part of the fish you're going to bite and attack first. And when you can't really find which end is the face and which end is the tail, uh, that becomes really challenging as a predator if you want to eat a fish. Uh, and fish do even even confuse predators even further with the patterns. If you look at nearly all of these fish with these intricate patterns, you'll notice that the eye is very, very well hidden. Uh, almost all of them have a dark band covering the eye and it blends in with them. Uh, or they're, um, 
they have a contrasting color that gets attention away from the head and to the tail. So, for example, um, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, bicolor chromis, which is a type of damselfish, um, the half the, the the front half of the fish is entirely black. And the back half is entirely white, and the eye is in the front, hidden in that black half. And there's a couple of dam other damselfish. Spiny chromis have the exact same color uh, pattern, and they're closely related. And the key there is if that fish is against a dark background, all you see is tail. You don't really see the rest of the fish, which is, one, very confusing. And two, if you're going to go for something and you go for the tail, uh, remember, fish fins are a lot like our fingernails. Um, if a fish is going to get attacked, it really wants to be bitten on the tail or a fin because it can still get away and that'll regrow after a couple of weeks. Uh, fins are pretty um, expendable for the most part. If they get torn or nipped, they'll regrow. Um, but your head isn't uh, as expendable, so you don't want to be attacked on your head. Uh, and that's why fish do so many cool things to try and sort of confuse which end is which. Um, a lot of fish go a step further and actually have a false eye spot somewhere on them, or at the tail or on the back fin. Um, the most famous group of fish for this, almost all of them do this, are butterfly fish. If you look at butterfly fish, they nearly all do both those things. They have a fake eye spot either on their tail or on the back of their dorsal fin. So at mm. first glance, it looks like their head is the tail. And they hide their real eye in a, in a dark stripe of some sort so that it's really confusing for a predator to try and tell which end is which um, in the less in the you know few milliseconds that it has to attack. So it's really, really cool. And uh, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty, it explains a lot of the colors and patterns that we do see. Um, and again, we see all these different stripes and things, and they're all serving a purpose uh, of that sort. And a lot of these fish are also, uh, a lot of fish oddly change color as they grow up. And a lot of fish are a different color when they're females and males as well. So again, a lot of that is selection. Uh, parrotfish are really, really interesting in that way. Uh, parrotfish actually start off as um, as a uh, as a as a sexless individual, and then they become a female, and then they become a non-dominant male, and then they become a dominant male. Um, at the very end of their life, depending on how old they are, and at each one of those stages, they're actually a, dif a different color, which makes them very, very difficult to identify because mm. um, each species can have up to four different color patterns depending on how old the fish is. So, and the the uh, terminal male that we call it at the end of um, the final stage. Um, is always the most colorful. That fish is always the biggest and most colorful one. And that's indicating that that's a fish that's very healthy. It's survived that long, and it's putting energy into all those colors. Uh, that way it's a more attractive fish to a female who wants the best chance for its offspring to survive and will therefore pick the healthiest male to, be, to, uh, um, to mate with. And that carries out through a lot of different uh, animals, not just fish, but um, the energy that a male will put in 
to uh, into the colors that it has and into being uh, into showing off that it is healthy carries out through the animal kingdom. So uh, we and again, fish are no different in that regard. A lot of species uh, will have very colorful large males uh, in order to do that, uh, and some are territorial, so they will fight for space. Uh, not so much parrotfish, but if you look at damselfish, they're highly territorial. Uh, same with clownfish uh, and a lot of others. Clownfish are a bit of an opposite, though, because the female is bigger. So, um, yeah, it just depends. Uh, it, fish are super diverse. So, no, there's no re- blanket statements, really. Um, but it's just uh, one of the possibilities that explains why they are a certain color. So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's amazing. Seriously. Yeah. I've just written like three pages of notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my big question in regards to changing of, of the sex there mm-hmm. is how do they do it and how long does it take? Yeah, it's really dependent on the species. So um, we there's there's all sorts of possibilities too. So we have fish like clownfish that start as uh, start off as a non-dominant male, and then the biggest male will turn into a female based on dominance. So in some fish, it's actually based on dominance, just like clown. So clownfish, it's based on dominance. Um, if that if if you keep a small male clownfish with a female, um, and that pair is together. Um, that male will never turn into a female uh, unless it has the chance to be the dominant fish. Um, my my two clownfish that I have in my aquarium here are 16 years old, and that male will never uh, or has never turned into a female because they've been together the whole time um, in that relationship. So um, clownfish are just like that. Uh, Antheas are also based on dominance. Uh, Antheas are uh, are a fish that not many people know about, but most people have definitely seen. Um, They're a very, very stark orange color, and the males um, uh, are a beautiful purple color. And they do the opposite to clownfish. So they'll actually live in a big school, and instead of the female being dominant like with a clownfish, um, the male Antheas is the most dominant, and they'll actually, again, if something happens to that male... Um, he'll actually um, be re- um, a dom- the dominant female will replace that male, and because they live in such big schools, um, the the male will actually pick on the female antheas because if there is a dominant female, um, that male doesn't want her turning into another male and taking half his females away from him. <laughs> so. Um, it's a very, very interesting and dynamic relationship there. Uh, and so that's based on dominance with clownfish and antheas. But uh, there's other species where it's uh, pretty much just based on uh, time and environmental factors. So we already discussed parrotfish. And parrotfish will change depending on their age pretty consistently. Uh, as they grow up, they become more mature. They'll go through the different phases um, from female to male and to a terminal male um, uh, later on in life. Um, we also know Barramundi from North Queensland. They all also start off in the ocean as uh, as juvenile males. 
they'll grow up in freshwater rivers and lakes and then eventually come back to the ocean. And once they get to a certain size, um, they'll become females as well. And so that's why if you've ever wondered when uh, when you do fish for barramundi, why there's a minimum and a maximum limit, it's because in between those sizes, there's a mix of males and females. If you're getting them too small, you're taking away all the males. And if you're getting all the really big ones, they're all going to be females. And they're the ones that contribute to that population the most. And so the length of time it takes to change can vary a lot between them. It can just be a few weeks or it can be to uh, a few uh, months to years, depending on the type of fish. Um, and where there's also a type of goby that actually can change back and forth between male and female as well, which is super cool and uh, weird. Uh, so you get all every kind of possibility uh, from male to female, female to male, and some fish that uh, will go back and forth. So it's, uh, it's a really weird and wonderful world being a fish. And um, part of why that's actually possible is um, because – um, with humans, um, our sex is controlled by chromosomes. So uh, depending on whether uh, you're a boy or a girl, um, you have uh, X or Y chromosomes um, or no Y chromosomes, I think, if you are um, a female because you can only – I can't remember. Look that up because one, um, one sex only has one chromosome. But um, the key is fish don't have any sex chromosomes at all. So um, they're not actually determined uh, based on that. And that's why you do get fish where it can change. The exception is sharks and rays, uh, which is an interesting uh, thing if you do go down that path. So, yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. It is very cool. I love what you just said, like the weird and wonderful world, being a fish. A very quick announcement to make that I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. My question is with the violet um, colour, what meterage is that where it's lost? Because you're saying that's the last one. Um, you, it, it depends a lot on the water clarity. You'll, you'll keep okay. getting light down to a few hundred metres. Um, wow. Let me look, at, um, uh, look it up. Um, so, uh, oh, so I was right. So males have an XY chromosome, by the way. Females... Uh, females are only X and X. So that's, uh, that's the, the key there. And fish don't have that at all. So that's pretty cool. So you're looking up the, um, the yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, you're saying five to 10 meters with the red, which is the first color to be, to be lost. Yeah. So yeah, violet. And by the time you get through orange, yellow, green, blue, violet mm. would be quite a fair yeah, way down. they say the sunlight zone is generally to 200 meters. So past 200 meters, there's very little usable light um, in that zone. Uh, and then later on after that, it's pretty much pitch black. And that's why you get, um, going back to fish color, that's why all those really scary deep ocean fish are actually just black uh, mm -hmm. or see-through in color because... 
there's just nothing down there for anything to see. And so it actually makes sense to be black because fish have really, really sensitive eyes to make use of what little light there is. And a lot of fish make their own light too. So that really scary fish from Finding Nemo with the light, uh, that's actually a real fish. Um, it's called an, uh, it's called an angler fish. Mm. And, um, uh, th- and that's not even the weirdest thing about that fish. Uh, the weirdest thing about that fish is actually um, to do with its reproduction as well, because when you live that when you live uh, that deep in the ocean, there's not really many fish around anyway. So not only do you want to eat most of the other fish you see, but when it comes time to meet another fish to make more fish, um, there's not many around. Uh, when they say there's plenty of fish in the sea. Um, <laughs> It's really not the case for this fish in particular. So when a male and a female anglerfish actually do meet, um, the male's body becomes part of the female's and it shrinks down so that there's basically nothing of that male left um, except uh, the organs it needs to give the sperm to the female. And it's they stay together that way for the rest of their lives. Hang on a minute. Go back and say that again. What? The the male's body actually becomes part of the female. So they permanently attach. And <gasps> it's it, the role for the rest of its life is basically just to provide sperm so that female can reproduce. And they'll never leave each other ever. And so they're stuck together and now they're swimming along how how long how long can this go on for? Well, that goes for the rest of their life. The male becomes part of the female's body. Part of yeah. So that is super weird, but super cool. Wow, that is <laughs> so damn cool. Yeah. Seriously, wow. Oh my god. Oh, I wonder if uh, the producers of Finding Nemo knew that one. No, I, I, yeah, finding knowing about fish kind of ruins Finding Nemo way earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's sad, but um, I don't know. I don't know how Finding Nemo would have been if it were biologically accurate. <laughs> it would have been very weird, to be honest. Oh, come on, so, Andrew! Don't yeah. ruin that for us. Don't <laughs> ruin it for us. We all love Finding Nemo. We do. I love Finding Nemo too. <laughs> it is so good. And with that, um. With the the colors of the fish mm-hmm. is, and look, I apologize if you did say this, but you've just said so many amazing and weird and wonderful things. But is the male more colorful than the female or are they both? It depends on the species, I guess. But, yeah. But In most I fish, mean, it's almost always the male. I, I can't actually think of any species off the top of my head where the female uh, fish is more colorful. Um mm. The female is generally bigger in a lot of species. Uh, not always, though, but um, most fish have a bigger female, and that just means she can hold more eggs. Mm. So, um, again, it just depends because uh, that changes in animals a lot. But with fish, um, generally the female is bigger. Um, it's definitely the case for sharks. It's definitely the case for a lot of species. Um, there's a lot of freshwater cichlids and species where the male is bigger and more colorful, but in most fish, it's uh, a colorful male and uh, a big female who's mm. not as colorful. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Wow. 
That is so cool. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I knew we would learn something um, amazing with, yeah. with this particular conversation because people are like, ah, fish, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, fish are, yes, fish are super cool. Really, really cool. And you were saying earlier that um, you mentioned sharks and how their colour, they have no colour because they're, they're the main predator. Mm-hmm. So so they're the ones who are shaping the colours of the fish. Is, am, am I correct in saying that? Uh, in a way, yes. Yeah. So sharks will um, – so predatory fish in general, uh, they may be colourful. They're not always, but uh, a lot of the time it, uh, it's true. A lot of the, the major predatory fish mm. that we think of, uh, like sharks, we, well, there aren't really many super colorful sharks. Mm. Well, uh, I'm it, thinking of yeah. even like barracuda and those sort of things. Like they're not colorful. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, it has to do more. It, barracuda tend to be an open water species. They may hunt on coral reefs. Um, but yeah, like you said, they, they are a predator. They don't really have a need to hide all the time, although there are bigger things than barracuda that will eat them. But they mm. depend on that bluey, silvery color to kind of hide because they're generally in open water. Open, yeah. So um, yeah, it, it's um, well, there are a few colorful predatory fish. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, you you wouldn't see as you would you don't think of as many as you do uh, with smaller fish that tend to be more colorful. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And in regards to fish, is it true, um, you know, what people say that fish don't have a very good memory? But when we think about, because we, 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 we use that saying, oh, you got a fish like oh, yeah. a memory like a goldfish. <laughs> yeah. but, then, but then when I've, I've spoken to you and I've spoken mm. to many other people on the reef yeah. or we've, at the aquarium, there's fish that will remember you. Mm-hmm. And they'll follow you, and they're so inquisitive. And so, can you explain to us a little bit in regards to the minds of a fish? Like, they well, do they have a five second memory? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tell us. Yeah, it's it's definitely a myth, and um, and we know, we know that for a lot of reasons, not just because of aquariums, but uh, on a basic level, if you do have a fish tank at home. Um, your fish will probably remember that every time you go to the tank, you're going to feed it. And so Mm. you'll find that your fish go to the surface. Uh, Even my fish here, if I stand up now, they'll all go up to the surface because they think (laughs) I'm I'm about to feed them. Um, And they only get fed once a day. So they must remember at least 24 hours because if they get fed once a day, they remember to the next day that when there's a person that they get fed. Mm. So we know that that's not true. That's easily kind of disproven informally at home for anyone who has a fish. <laughs> but in the wild, we know that fish actually have to remember for way longer than a day. Uh, fish have to remember where to go to find food every day. Mm. Fish have to remember um, which other fish are are dangerous to them and mean to them and where to go and where not to go and all sorts of things when you're living around a reef. Uh, fish will remember where a cleaning station is on their mm. reef so that they can go and have another fish clean parasites and dead skin off them. Uh, there's all sorts of important things that a fish has to remember on a day-to-day, uh, week-to-week, and uh, yearly basis. So we know that fish definitely remember things for a long time and that there's a lot more to them 
uh, mm. kind of simply swimming and eating uh, and uh, and reproducing. They they definitely and from working at aquariums, you fish definitely go through things and think they have preferences to um, to the other fish that they hang out with. They make friends, um, and a lot of them are are completely different species. And they'll still swim together and do things together. So it's really, really fascinating uh, to see. And we're learning more and more about that as time goes on. As I mean, as we sort of look more about how fish behave, um, we, we're finding that there's a lot more to fish kind of um, fish intellect and psychology mm. than, than we would have thought 10, 20 years ago even. Uh, it's a really, really interesting area of study, and we're finding that there's a lot of different kind of um, things that they go through. Fish are capable of learning. Uh, you can teach them yes. things. Um, it's actually really cool. We just don't really think of fish in that way a lot, but um, it's definitely true. You can teach fish uh so many different things uh, you can teach them to swim through hoops you can teach them to jump and train to get their food uh, when i worked at the cans aquarium uh, i taught all of the stingrays uh, in the small lagoon to uh, come up to the shallower area to get their food so that it didn't get stolen by the crayfish in the bottom and so <laughs> over time uh, we know that fish can definitely learn all sorts of things there's definitely a lot of thought going on um, if you look at the way a lot of them behave, they're very analytical. They're thinking. Um, I've had rats that I've worked with before, um, and just the way their eyes move, you just have this mm. feeling that they're thinking about something. And um, these guys will wait and steal food when, and they'll learn where the food goes and steal it, uh, even when you're trying to target feed another fish. Uh, they just learn the different things you do. And so um, there's a lot there. There's a lot. Uh, and, and again, fish need to have a level of thinking to survive. If they only remembered things for a few seconds or they had, um, they didn't have the capacity to, to think and actually make life or death decisions, um, they wouldn't really be around and they wouldn't be very successful uh, like they are now. If we look at fish now, um, you know, they've speciated into uh, tens of thousands of species. Uh, they're the most diverse group of vertebrates that we know of on the planet. So um, they wouldn't have done that were they dumb or had poor memories. So mm. pretty cool. Yes. So finding Nemo, you are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah, for Dory. Yeah, for Dory. Uh, yeah. But we're not but we won't ruin the movie. Oh, yeah. But the rest um, of the fish were pretty smart, actually, to come up with what they did. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, yeah. And, and that's a great segue into the big question I'm going to ask you is why do we need our oceans? Like what, what you know, uh, like gen that's a genuine question that I get asked as well. Yeah. And, and, and you would too being at the aquariums yeah. over time. Mm -hmm. Is what's so important about about our oceans, why do we need it? Why do we need to protect it? But what 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 role role does it play yeah. in our life? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, our oceans play massive roles um, on a on a physics level. Um, the oceans have a massive amount of water, and that massive volume of water actually holds a lot of heat. 
without the oceans, our planet would actually be very, very extreme in the temperatures. You'd pretty much be too cold um, half the year and too hot to survive the rest of the year. Um, by keeping, by holding, oh, if you know about physics again, water, uh, it takes a lot of energy to change the temperature of water. Water uh, holds heat very, very well. And so when you consider the, uh, the massive amount of water in the oceans and how much it's actually holding, that water, most of it is actually very, very cold. So it's very important at keeping the temperature of our planet stable, um, of controlling weather and climate in coastal areas. Um, ocean currents move heat around and distribute it. So, for example, Europe would be freezing cold were it not for a current that brings warm water from the Caribbean across the Atlantic to Europe. Without that current, uh, Europe would be frozen most of the year. But we know Europe is generally a very, very nice place in terms of, uh, of climate most of the year. So um, those ocean currents are really important. And as a whole, the ocean pretty much controls climate on the planet. Um, and so when we talk about our, our climate changing, when you think about how much energy it would take for the average temperature of the ocean when, when we think about it, oh, it's only a degree or two, but the, the, the insane amount of energy that it takes to just bring the ocean's temperature up, that little amount, is, it's a huge amount of energy, and that's a massive increase in temperature. So when we talk about climate change, um, a lot of it is actually slowed down by the ocean because the ocean not only absorbs uh, and keeps the temperature stable by holding in so much heat. But uh, it also absorbs a lot of the extra carbon that we're actually emitting. And uh, that causes problems in the ocean in and of itself, um, if we get into the physics of it further. Um, but it's, it's basically stabilizing the climate on our planet by keeping temperature stable and by absorbing a lot of the extra carbon that, uh, we've emitted over the years, uh, again, with its own sort of issues caused in the ocean by those two things. Um, but it has that massive role in keeping uh, our climate the way it is. Uh, it also provides a lot of the oxygen that we need. Uh, we think about rainforests a lot and trees when we think about, uh, oh, yeah, trees give us oxygen. Um, we give them carbon dioxide and they return it. Um, but uh, most of the, uh, but based on uh, the biomass, we actually get more oxygen from phytoplankton, which are a plant-like organism that also uh, use photosynthesis to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen. Uh, we actually get more oxygen on planet Earth from these marine organisms than we do from our rainforests. So it's, it's providing us with oxygen. It's keeping our climate stable. Uh, it's actually keeping us alive in almost every definition of, of, that, of what it does. So it's really important that we do look after it. A lot of those processes depend on the animals that live there. Um, phytoplankton needs specific conditions to survive. Our coral reefs need very specific conditions to survive as well. Um, that's why they're found in very specific areas of our oceans, and they're not just found 
uh, everywhere we look. So, um, so we do need them a lot. Uh, a lot of developing countries really depend on the oceans uh, as a source of protein. They just don't live in places where they can grow anything else to eat. They need seafood, and that's all they have. Um, it's very different to a lot of developed Western countries who basically indulge in seafood um, because they can or because they want it, not so much based on need, like a lot of these small uh, island nations that we often discuss when we're talking about sustainable seafood. Uh, and we ship and need the oceans to transport our goods and ourselves. Uh, so the ocean is very, very important in lots of ways to us as a species uh, and to our planet as a whole entire, um, uh, when we look at the bigger picture. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, going on the sustainable seafood, I heard on the radio here in Cairns the other, oh, it was around about a month ago now, and it, it was some weird ad thing that popped up with the yeah. news and it said, save a mackerel, eat a shark. Mm. So uh, the, the word that was going around during that whole month um, leading up to Shark Week was how there's too many sharks mm. coming into the coastline and therefore not much of the fish. Mm -hmm. So with, in regards to sustainable seafood or sustainable fishing or all that sort of stuff, like what, what is your opinion on that? Because I didn't, I didn't quite understand. I just heard it. I haven't spoken to anybody about it. So mm. I'm not understanding why that was out. Save a mackerel, eat a, eat a shark. Yeah, it's um, – um... Yeah, it's actually really disturbing that that's even on the radio because it is, it's very false. Um, sharks are pretty much at the bottom of any sustainable seafood guide from any country because uh, like we talked about last time, shark populations don't just explode. They have very, very few babies per year. And uh, every um, nearly every study or every study that I've read um, from the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park indicates that shark populations are lower. So um, it's actually very false to think that uh, eating sharks at all is sustainable. Um, nearly all species are uh, overfished or don't have the capacity to really reproduce in the rate that they would need to if they were fished at the same rates as other fish. So um, that's in and of itself a problem, but just the idea that sharks are uh, are overpopulating to the point where they are eating other fish is also wrong, and, and that's wrong on two levels. Uh, firstly, sharks uh, sharks don't really uh, spike in populations because they can't they can't just reproduce uh, at that level, and uh, there's no kind of um, and all of the research shows that sharks are really important to having healthier populations of fish. Uh, they keep the reef very healthy by making sure that specific species of fish don't uh, actually become uh, too populous and eat fish below them, which a lot of them are actually really important at different roles on the reef. So uh, you, you can't really overfish. Um, there are certain species where... You can't overfish them as much, but sharks are definitely not one of them. They're very easy to overfish uh, with that mentality. Uh, a lot of a lot of the problem is people who think there are a lot of sharks are generally uh, they're generally people who go fishing, and uh, like we said, f fish aren't fish aren't 
uh, they're not dumb and they think. And sharks especially haven't survived uh, 400 million years on the earth by being dumb. Um, in areas where there's a lot of human population, uh, sharks can easily figure out that uh, the sound of a boat means people are fishing. And if you're a shark, you're going to go after fish that are hooked. It's way less effort. And uh, sharks have survived by being uh, being smart. Nobody's going to put more effort into their dinner than they need to. So a fish that's already restrained is going to be an easy meal for a shark. Uh, and sharks definitely can learn that. We know that sharks are capable of learning. Um uh, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of what we call a, a sort of a sampling bias in science when when fishermen kind of come and claim that oh there's too many sharks they're eating all my fish well are there really um, and and all of those same fishermen will say that the scientists are wrong in their assessments because as scientists we're not just sampling one area. So sure, there's a small chance that that specific reef could have a lot of sharks, but uh, is that does that mean that all the reefs have more sharks? Probably not, unless you've sampled all of those reefs in the same way. Um, you can't really claim that in general there's more sharks. You also can't claim that by uh, dangling a hook with a dead fish on it in the water that there are more sharks, because that's naturally going to attract uh, more sharks because sharks can smell that from a really far distance like we talked about last time um, they have an incredibly sensitive sense of smell they can hear struggling fish so you're probably attracting sharks from uh, from a long way away every time your boat pulls up and you cast a line with a bait in uh, that's definitely going to be attracting more sharks. Um, it doesn't mean there are more sharks in the ocean or on the reef. Uh, it just means that you are personally seeing more of them because of the nature of what you're doing. And that doesn't mean anything is overpopulated. Uh, again, um, sharks are still commercially fished in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Um, and through on, on all Australian coasts, sharks are sadly not protected at all in Australian waters. And so to think that they're overpopulated would think that um, we have been protecting them somehow. But this, it's actually very sad um, that Australia doesn't really have much protection, if any, for sharks. Um, they are slightly protected from recreational fishermen in Queensland because you're not allowed to keep a shark that's more than one and a half meters long. Um, that's actually not so much to protect the sharks. That's actually more of a health measure because like we talked about last time as well, um, large sharks that have been eating a lot of fish for a long time uh, are very likely to have uh, either uh, or a combination of a very high mercury content or the possibility of ciguatera toxin in them. And so sharks larger than one and a half meter are more likely to cause you health problems. Uh, it would be nice if we protected sharks for their ecological role and uh, for their benefit to the oceans. But uh, sadly, uh, sharks are not a very protected animal in Australia when compared to others. And so uh, we have to be very careful when we sort of make claims or listen to claims that uh, go against all the science. Uh, and the science is pretty clear that shark populations on the Great Barrier Reef are much lower 
uh, overall over the last 10, uh, 10, 20 years than they were a while ago. And that's using the exact same methods over that time frame to come to that conclusion. And so uh, it's and it's not just one study, it's uh, several studies all kind of agreeing that that's the case. So coming out as a fisherman and disagreeing with lots of very um, uh, reviewed and sort of uh, critically examined studies isn't really the way to go forward uh, proving a point. Mm. So what do you think it would take to be able to get sharks listed as protected in, in Australia? I think it's it comes down to, um, I think a lot of it is public perception. Yeah, right. Um, we, humans like to have monsters. We like to have things that we're afraid of. And sharks are sadly on uh, on most of the... Um, uh, when you enter the water, that's the first thing people will say they're scared of. Uh, even though, um, you know, you had more chance of dying on the way there in the car. Uh, I mean, we've looked at the, we, I think we touched on what the road tolls are just in Queensland um, up to this point. Um, you, you've got more chance of a vending machine falling on you uh, or a coconut killing you than a shark. But people still... Um, uh, the fear of being eaten by something coming out of the water uh, still sort of uh, takes precedent over mm. dying from a coconut, probably because it's more <laughs> dramatic and because the news will report a lot more on someone dying from a shark bite than from a coconut. So a lot of it is yeah. just our culture. Uh, and yeah. I think a lot of um, – and the government definitely plays on, our, uh, on that fear as well. Uh, we have a shark control program – in Queensland and New South Wales that uh, has been around from the 1930s, which we, again, the science says it doesn't work. Uh, common sense says it doesn't work. Um, we see all the dead turtles and other harmless species and dolphins and whales from that program when we know it's not working for sharks. And yet politics uh, is the only real thing keeping that in Queensland, New South Wales, and it's even still in the uh, Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Um, the court case from the other year basically said that the hooks can stay in, but the sharks have to be released alive now. Um, and so it just makes you wonder, uh, you know, you're, you're now swimming in a beach with baited hooks a few hundred meters away. Is, is it a very smart thing to do? Um, I mean, I can't think of a shark scientist who would sort of say, um, yes, put baited hooks in the water near the beach. That's definitely what people want to swim near. So <laughs> we, and again, it's, um, when you think about it, it's just very, very illogical. Um, mm. The documentary I was involved in that was just in cinemas this past weekend, if you want to learn more about it, uh, Envoy is, uh, it should be uh, available to see outside cinemas uh, somewhere soon. So keep an eye out for it and follow the Envoy um, social media and you'll hopefully be able to watch it at home sometime soon. Uh, and it talks about that program in a lot of depth uh, and it has 
a lot of footage from uh, from those uh, methods and from a lot of people who are really working to end that. Um, and I think education is really what will sort of give sharks more protection here. But uh, the biggest thing that we can do is we can shift the economic uh, driver. Um, even the greediest people will say, oh, when, when something has money, then we may as well protect it. And the key here is to, uh, is to make that money, uh, make sharks worth more money. They are swimming around making the reef a healthy place than they mm-hmm. are uh, in people's seafood. And when you look at the cost, when you look at the economic role a shark has, um, and I think we touched about on this as well last time, um, yeah. they're worth so much more alive. In Palau, it's worth, um, they calculated the, um, uh, they looked at the, uh, the money that a reef shark would bring to the economy at $1.2 million over its lifetime, um, rather than just a couple hundred dollars if they fished it, sold the fins and the meat to people. And so even if you're greedy, it kind of just makes sense to protect sharks because people do travel to see them. People are people dive on the Great Barrier Reef and they want to see sharks. They want to see mm-hmm. lots of sharks. Um, I don't know any divers who are really not wanting to see sharks or who are afraid of them. Um, mm-hmm. Being afraid of sharks is what people who never see sharks kind of uh, fall into. Um mm-hmm. But for all of us who are around them all the time, I can't think of a person who uh, works with sharks who is afraid of them. They're really cool animals. And I think the more we shift that economic benefit to keeping them alive, um, the more that sharks specifically will be – there will be more incentive for the government to continue tightening restrictions and eventually maybe giving them the same level of protection that they have in a lot of other countries like Palau, like the Bahamas, where sharks provide a very significant level of income to those countries. And um, it's not just sharks. It's really important to be choosing sustainable seafood uh, overall. If you do feel like you need to eat seafood, there are some excellent guides that kind of say which species is more or less sustainable, what to avoid, and uh, what um, what you can get. And mm. going back to that odd radio ad, uh, mackerel is actually one of the more sustainable species. Uh, they reproduce very, very quickly. Um, catching them doesn't damage other habitats because they're an open water fish that you can catch without impacting other species. And so they're actually one of the more sustainable fish to choose besides um, sharks uh, and if you avoid sharks at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much for yeah. explaining it like that. No, yeah. Awesome. And my, my the, the thing that came up in my thoughts based on everything we've spoken about tonight yeah. is, is if, if shark numbers and sharks were to slowly dwindle and disappear, over time and, and whatever time um, you want to add in, mm. how would this affect the colours of the, of the fish? How would this affect the fish? Yeah, um, it's almost impossible to tell because everything that we've sort of arrived at has happened over millions of years. Mm. Um, we don't know what animal would sort, of, uh, would sort of take the place of a shark as a predator mm. for all these fish. It could just be a bigger fish. Uh, in which case a lot of the same things would probably stick around. Um, but depending on how that 
predator sort of hunted, then we would have to wait and see how that happened. But I don't know uh, if as a species at the moment we're going to be long and around long enough for to see yeah. those colors change uh, yeah. that extensively. So it's yeah. uh, uh, it's more theoretical than it would be. Uh, yeah. Love it. Love this conversation so yeah. much. Thank you. No, we've, no we've, we've learned so much from you from talking about what is coral, yeah. and, um, sharks, and, and then, you know, the roles of the ocean as well as the colours of the fish. And we've gone far and wide, wide in between. So if you haven't listened to our podcast with Andrew, mm-hmm. please, this is our third one. So jump back and check out all the other ones. But one thing I want to leave with our listeners, because this is, this affects everyone worldwide, is what would you want to say to everyone in regards to our part? What role do we play? But also what can we do in our day-to-day life to help sustain our, our, our oceans, to help protect it, to help conserve it, to help, you know, people in 200 years' time to be able to enjoy the beauty that we have? Um, but also, as you said, that oceans play a massive role for us as humans, but also everything else on land. So, yeah, what's your parting words, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, um, I think my parting words are that our oceans do play a lot for us. Um, but uh, as much as our oceans do for us, we actually have a big part to play to allow our oceans to continue providing the ecosystem services, the benefits that they provide us. We're at a place in history now where we really need to do our part to allow them to continue doing that. Um, choosing sustainable seafood um, or avoiding seafood is one of the easiest things to do uh, for us at the moment. Uh we, we have so many choices of what to eat these days that it's so easy for us to just do that little bit. Uh, it's not and um, it's not just the taking the fish out, but commercial fishing is responsible for a lot of the plastic and debris that we produce as well. Um, reducing our plastic use is huge too. Again, these are the easiest things we can do. Um, I I've personally stopped eating at takeaway places who cannot give me food in something that is biodegradable. So if I go and everything is in plastic, I'll just go somewhere else and I'll eat something else. Uh, You know, consumer pressure is one of the biggest things that will change our world, be it choosing sustainable seafood so that there's no economic benefit to fishing for things that aren't, to choosing just take away food that's in a cardboard box rather than a plastic container or a plastic cup. Um, all of those things are so easy and you can do them tomorrow. Like mm-hmm. they're so easy to do. Um, you know, choosing the sauces for your food at home that are in a plastic, uh, that are in a, a, a glass bottle rather than, you know, a plastic one. Um, I st- I love drinking iced tea. I now buy the iced tea cordial that comes in a glass bottle instead of the ones that used to come in plastic bottles and I've eliminated plastic that way. There's so many things, little things that we can do uh, like that just for plastic use and for our seafood consumption that you can pretty much do 
tonight if you're going shopping. So it's easy. Um, it's the, the bigger things are kind of where people are like, oh, that's so much. And that's hard too. You know, uh, we know climate change is one of the biggest problems. And uh, unlike plastic and, uh, you know, seafood, it's more difficult because it's one of those things that takes a very collective effort for us to solve. Um, it's one of those things where we won't really see a difference in our in our personal lives as much as the other two if we do it. Uh, but things, you know, reducing our carbon footprint is something we really need to do. And we can't also use um, a lot of people are like, oh, but look at this country and what they're doing and they're responsible for this much. Um Doing the right thing doesn't always mean everyone else is going to be doing the right thing at the same time. It still makes us, uh, you know, it still means personal responsibility. And if everyone kind of thought like that, then I think we would solve the climate change issue a lot sooner uh, than we currently are. Um, but little things, um, choosing energy efficient appliances, um, using a bicycle if you can, using public transit, um, you know, turning all your lights off when you're not using them. Those are all little things that we can do uh, to start that. Supporting initiatives uh, for more sustainable um, energy use. You know, there's so many different things. Like getting solar on your on your home if you're in a place to do that. I'm in a rental, so I don't really have the choice. Um, but you can choose to you can choose energy providers now who offset a portion to, uh, to to renewables or who use renewables for an extra minor cost a month. Again, depending on where you live, a lot of these things are definitely possible uh, and easier uh, for some to do than others. Uh, but again, every little thing kind of, kind of helps. So it, it's up to us and it's up to us to pressure more than anything. It's up to us to pressure governments to actually put incentives in for people to do the right thing. You know, when the time comes to buy a new car in the future, you know, think about getting an electric one. Because I definitely, I definitely am for when I get a new car. Um, I think there's a lot of changes that are happening in our lifetimes that uh, we can make the choice to, but we can also make the choice in who we sort of vote for in government and what they're planning to do to make that easier and to also, um, as a country, represent what we want to do in, in a bigger and sort of on the world stage. Mm, absolutely. Perfect. Love it. Love all those suggestions. And yeah. and there is change coming. I, 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 I feel and I see um, exactly what you're saying. So yeah, it's perfect. What a great conversation. Thank you so yeah, much no for problem at all. coming in. We're hanging out tonight. So I really love our conversations and I learn so much. My brain always ends <laughs> up going a little crazy. I'm laying in bed at night after our chats and just like <laughs> million, billion questions. Uh, yeah. So I need to get you back on. <laughs> so I'm sure there's going to be another episode with you back on, Andrew. Thank you so much. As per usual, I'm going to put all of your details in the podcast show yeah. notes. Anyone can find them anywhere. They can mm -hmm. go directly to your links. They can email you. 
um, or message you via Instagram to ask any particular questions that they may have or even have a beautiful, healthy um, conversation, yeah. debate, whatever you want to call oh, it. Like, let's let's yeah, do it. Definitely talk to me. I love yep. chatting, discussing. <laughs> um, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Love it. So you have an awesome week. It's only Monday, right? Yeah. Now, by the way, I don't even know what date it is. I think it's the, yeah. oh, it's the 26th of July. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrew. We will get you back on again soon and you take care and we will um, we'll, we'll have a, a another wild chat somewhere, I'm yeah. sure. No, I look forward to it. Have a good night as well. Awesome. And thank you for all those beautiful suggestions. I love it and I hope people are curious about it and go and do their own um, exploration and, um, and research as well. So have a good night. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Wow, another awesome wild chat, which I hope you really enjoyed because I can tell you now I absolutely did. I would really love to connect with you all as well. So please don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram, which you can get the links in our podcast show notes. I have them right there for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us by spreading the word. You can also take a screenshot of the episode you just listened to, share it on your socials and tag us in it, of course. We would also love a review. If you have time, please jump on your podcast channel you just listened to us on and give us a review, give us some feedback and don't forget to click that big subscribe button which of course helps us spread the word even further and for you to also be notified for any upcoming episodes. If you are somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who would love to be on our Australian Wildlife Education Wild Chats please send them my way or get in contact with me. Also in the show notes, you can find all those details on how to get in contact. I love chatting and also learning from others who can showcase their knowledge, their expertise, but also their passion and any projects that they might have going on. So please reach out to me as I would love to get you on our podcast. But otherwise, I hope you're all amazing. I hope you're all having a great day. And I will, you'll be hearing from me in the next wild chat. See you next week. Bye.